I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, so we're continuing with the bracha called Malchut Beit David, which basically means it's talking about the kingship of David, of King David. And as I mentioned last week, originally, according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, this bracha and the one that we did last week, the Yerushalayim, were originally one bracha. But uh, during the time of the beginning of Christianity, when the whole question of Mashiach, of the Messiah, was, you know, obviously a hot topic, uh, the Jewish people felt that this bracha should be on its own, and that this bracha was basically the Jewish response to what was going on at the time. So it might have been a later bracha also added later on in Jewish history, um, after they had already made the Shemona Esrei. Um, so when we say this bracha, we're really fulfilling one of the mitzvahs. Everybody's muted. We're fulfilling one of the mitzvahs, which is basically a mitzvah of longing for and hoping for and yearning for Mashiach. I remember as a kid going for a walk once with one of my uncles who wasn't particularly religious. And I was asking him about, you know, Mashiach and do you believe in Mashiach? And I still remember being kind of surprised. He said, oh, Mashiach, that's a Baba Misa. Everybody knows what a Baba Misa is, right? That's a one, you know, that's a fairy tale. That's not real. And the truth is, is even for believing Jews, you know, and it's a difficult one to believe in. You know, it's kind of up there with with believing that one day people are going to be resurrected. Right, that death is not the end, and even Olam Haba is not the end. But in Jewish idea, there's going to be a whole new world that we can't even imagine. And you know, delving into this topic, it's endless. There's just so much to it, and there's so many mysteries to it, and there's so many different opinions about what it's going to be like, the Rambam and others. But the idea of you know hoping and yearning for Mashiach is a part of being a a Jew. The Rambam says somebody that doesn't believe in Mashiach coming, somebody who doesn't believe in, you know, uh, it it cannot be a real Jew. That many people say at the end of davening, it's in every sitter, there's 13 principles of faith. And anima amin, we all know it. Anima amin be'muna shalema be'vias hamashiach. Ve'af al pi she'yismamea im kozeh ha'kelo b'chol yom she'yavo. I believe. Number 12 on the list of 13, it says, I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he may delay, nevertheless, I anticipate every day that he will come. Now, the Gemara in Shabbos 31a says that when a person leaves this world and goes up to the base Din Shalmala, the high court, because everybody has a court case in the next world, that's a Jewish concept, right? Um, They're asked six questions. And the fourth of the, to to basically uh, determine how well they fulfilled their mission in this world. And the fourth of the six questions is the question, Sipisa Yeshua. Did you long for Mashiach? Did you hope for Mashiach? So why is this question asked? Why is it so important that a Jew longs for Mashiach? That he understands what is missing and what could be. First of all, this idea of longing for Mashiach to give you an an analogy. So Rabbi Dessler, who lived in this century, 
but we have to think of a little bit of the olden days when doctors used to make house calls. He compares it to a child who's very, very sick. And of course, the parents and all the relatives and friends who all live close together in the small little shtetl are all very, very worried about this child. And the doctor's supposed to come to the house and every, with every single knock on the door, of course, the parents are running to the door, hoping that it's the doctor who's come. Now, time passes, the doctor doesn't arrive, and everybody else outside of the immediate family, you know, it's kind of gone to the back of their consciousness, the sick, sick child. It's not as urgent because it's not right in front of them anymore. But for the parents, every time they hear any kind of noise, any kind of rustle, anybody who comes to the door, they're running to the door and checking over and over again, hoping that the doctor will arrive. Another mashal I heard from Rabbi Pincus is imagine if you yourself were in a hospital and you're sitting in your hospital bed and you're waiting for the doctor to come to you. So he says, every time you hear footsteps coming down the hall, you sort of perk up. Your, your hearing becomes even more uh, um, refined because you're thinking to yourself, oh, I hear the doctor. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming to my room. And then, of course, he doesn't come to your room. He passes by your room to go to another room, right? Or he takes a left instead of a right, and you're down on the right side. But that doesn't stop you from every time you hear those footsteps thinking and anticipating that he's coming to you, he's coming to see you. This is the kind of feeling we're supposed to have about Mashiach. Imagine you need a kidney transplant or God forbid a liver transplant. And you, it is such a nisayon, it's such a challenge, such a test to wait for it. So you're waiting with a sense of desperation for the phone call that's gonna bring you the news of the available organ and the new chance at life. So these analogies are supposed to make us understand that when we understand how much we are lacking, how sick we are in the Galut, in exile, especially in terms of our spiritual health, but in every way, we would wait for Mashiach the same way that somebody would wait for a liver transplant or a kidney transplant. I always joke around this time of year that if we waited for Mashiach the way we wait for our cleaning ladies to arrive to help us with our Pesach cleaning, he probably would have already been here, right? <laughs> I mean, God forbid you get a call that the cleaning lady can't make it or she's you know, too sick from having cleaned the other five people, Jewish people's homes. That uh, I have a cleaning lady this year that used to be a hairdresser, okay? But a lot of people are taking other jobs. And I mean, she's in for a big surprise because up until now, it's been pretty normal. But like, she's starting to realize things are getting very uh, intense now with the cleaning, right? And she didn't really know about all this. But that's the point that if we would long for our... Um, Mashiach, the way we long for our cleaning lady, I think he would have been here a long time ago. So I want to show you a book that just came out. I'm going to be using it. It's actually related to what's going on right now in the world with COVID. It was written specifically because of the pandemic. And this Rabbi Sarotskin, it's called The End Illuminated. A lot of it in here is all about the mitzvah of waiting for Mashiach. So I'm going to quote a little bit out of that book. But in the meantime, um, oh yeah, I do want to quote one thing now because it's it's um, it's in terms of Pesach, so I thought it was very relevant. Okay, so we said before, even in last week's bracha, that we say Baruch Atah Hashem Bone Yerushalayim. That is God who is building Jerusalem. We talk about the process of redemption as being in the present. Not that God will build Yerushalayim or God will bring the Redeemer, but that God is bringing because Geula is a process. It's cumulative. It's something that's always happening that we're moving towards. So the idea here is that the truth is, of course, that we should never despair 
Though we don't yet actually see Mashiach, he's definitely closer than he was before. The Ramchal explains that every Seder night, which we're coming up to, brings the Geula closer because the whole coming of Mashiach is a process. So this is the analogy. He says, Galos, exile, has many thick layers of Tuma. Tuma means spiritual impurity. Okay, just leave it at that. We're not going to discuss that right now. But the idea is these layers of Tuma need to be cut in order for the redemption to come. This is like cutting through a slab of meat. It can't be done in one motion. You have to go back and forth with the knife many times to cut completely through it. So every year on Seder night, it's like we make another slice in the meat and the cut gets deeper. Eventually we will cut all the way through and Mashiach will come because we have a tradition that Mashiach can come on Seder night, right? That's why every year the Seder ends with the words, Lashana Haba'a Birushalayim. We're saying that we're on the way. We've just made another slice through Galus. And the truth is the same thing happened in Egypt as well. The Geula, the, the process of leaving Egypt was in stages and phases. It came slowly, like the dawn. Six months before we actually left Egypt, the slavery had ended. So for six months before we left, we were free in terms of not being slaves anymore. Then when the Makos continued, the 10 plagues came, we gained more freedom. And then when the last one, Makos Bechoros, that was another type of release from Egypt. Then we had the 49 days. And then when, of course, we reached the highest level of freedom when we came to, re to, to receive the Torah. So the idea of uh, Geula, being in the present tense, that it's a process that we're in the middle of. This is very important to understand. Okay. Um, so what are we asking for in this bracha called Malchus based David? Let's just read it quickly. At Semach David Avdecha Meherat Tatsmiach. Interesting that it begins with the word et, right? We never know what that word means. What is es or et, right? We have all these ets that are in the middle of a sentence that aren't really ever translated, okay? Et semach David avdecha meherat tatsmiach. The offspring of your servant David, may you speedily cause to flourish. Tatsmiach means to sprout, to grow. Vikarno tarum bishuatecha, and enhance his pride through your salvation. Kilishuatecha kivinu kolhayom, because we hope for your salvation every day. Baruchata Hashem, blessed are you, Hashem. Matsmiach Karen Yeshua, who causes the pride of salvation really to flourish. The word Karen means horn, but here it's translated as. Pride. We're going to see the connection between that. We have that word twice at the beginning too, where it says the Karno Tarum. So what is this horn? What is this horn referring to, which in English they translate as pride? Okay. What does this have to do with Mashiach? Okay. So just a little bit of history. In this bracha, which is bracha 15, and I want to tell you a little bit about the symbolism of the fact that it's the 15th bracha. 15 comes up in Judaism over and over again. We have 15 morning brachas that we say right at the beginning of the day. There's 15. What's with the number 15? 15 are the days leading up to the full moon. On Pesach night, when we sing the song Dayenu, there's 15 verses because they're talking about the 15 stages of redemption. From the time that we left Egypt to building the Mikdash, the sanctuary, the Mishkan in the desert. There's 15 steps in the Seder of Pesach. There's 15 Shir Hama'alot in Tehillim, Song of Ascent. Hama'alot, 
And each one corresponds to the 15 steps <clears throat> that led from the woman's court in the Beit HaMikdash to the men's court. So there were 15 steps that you had to climb. Another beautiful idea. Oh, and, and just the first idea is, by the way, that 15 is symbolic of a goal that's reached, but in cumulative stages, right? Like steps that you're climbing, cumulative stages. So the word ish and the word isha, man and woman, right? They have the same letters, except the ish has the letter yud and the isha has the letter hey. Yud and hey equal 15. Okay, the idea here is that marriage and Shalom Bayit is a cumulative stage, uh, sorry, a cumulative series of stages leading to perfection, right? The marriage uh, paradigm is set up to help us perfect ourselves, right? So the Yud and the Hey represent that cumulative process of working towards the goal of perfection. And finally, um, the world was created with the letters Yud and Hey. I always like to tell my kids that I teach in the afternoon when I'm teaching them the letter H, right? And I'm teaching them that the letter H says, because there's a beautiful mendrus that says, God created this world with the letter Hey. Okay? So as hard as it is for a human being to just go, to expire with that little that's how much energy, so to speak, Hashem expended in creating the entire universe. And the Yud represents Olam Haba. So obviously, it's a cumulative process of our lives in Olam Hazah, the Hay, leading to the next world and reaching perfection through it. So the Bracha is the 15th in the series in the Shemona Esrei, because Mashiach is going to be the culmination of history. God created the world with a plan. He created the world with a purpose, with an end goal, right? The same way anybody who starts a project has to have a vision of what they're getting to, what's needed. And so each stage of history is contributing to the final perfection, which is this idea of Mashiach that we're longing for, that we're hoping for, and that when we say this bracha with kavana, we're actually... Fulfilling the obligation of Tzipisa le Yeshua, of hoping for and longing for and yearning for the Mashiach. We know the Chafetz Chaim, who was a rabbi who was famous for promoting the laws of Shmir Salashon, of guarding your speech, among other things, a great Talmud Chacham in Europe. He had a suitcase packed that was ready for when Mashiach came. That was his way of showing that he really believed it. And that it could happen at any moment. So he had his Mashiach suitcase that was basically sending a message to himself and to Hashem that I'm ready. I'm ready to go whenever it happens at any moment, right? Because it happens, we say Yeshua Hashem Keheref Ayin. The salvation of Hashem comes in the blink of an eye. The same way we left Egypt in haste. That's the same way this next Yeshua is going to come. We're going to talk about that, but how um, salvation comes very speedily. And speed, interestingly, is one of the themes of Pesach that we're coming up to, right? 18 minutes to make a matzah out of flour and water. If you go one second over 18 minutes, your matzah has turned into chametz. So it's all about speed which is going to be what we're going to be speaking about on Wednesday about this main mida called alacrity or zrizut and how important it is in spiritual growth, avodas Hashem, and how it relates to Pesach. Okay. Um, I believe there were also 15 generations until uh, David Hamelech from the beginning of time became king over, the, over uh, the, the whole world, actually, at that time, okay? Or maybe it was Shlomo, his son, who built the temple. We're going to hold off on that. I just want to make sure that I said that right. Okay, so 
So we said part of being a Jew is to be eagerly awaiting Mashiach's coming, or else it's obviously that we don't really believe. We don't really believe it. Now, the Rambam, who was a rationalist, Maimonides, he was very much a rationalist as opposed to a mystic. The Rambam says that nothing is really going to change after Mashiach comes. And I'm, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, Mashiach is just a regular person. He's really a statesman, a politician, who everybody is like backing. Because everybody, right, left, center, extreme, whatever it's going to be, he's going to make an impression in the world, you know, on Zoom, social media, I don't know how, but I mean, we're all set up for it, right? Being able to reach one end of the earth up to the other, and everyone is going to know and be ready for his appearance. And the Rambam says, you know, it's not going to be magical and mystical and all kinds of miracles happening necessarily. The only difference is going to, that's going to be between now and then is the fact that the Jewish people will not be subjugated to the nations. And he writes about it in Hilchos Malachim, as well as his entire Mishnah Torah. And he says this, in that time, there will be no famine or war, no jealousy or competition, for good things will be plentiful and all the pleasures will be available as dust. And the entire world will only be occupied with increasing knowledge of Hashem. And therefore, the Jewish people will be great sages, knowing all the hidden things, because we've been at this for thousands of years, right? The world has to catch up to us. Understanding the mind of their creator as much as humanly possible. As it says, for the world will be filled with the knowledge of Hashem as the waters cover the sea. Just as famine and war the Rambam says, inhibits spiritual growth because people don't have the ability to serve Hashem for lack of strength and lack of material possessions. Jealousy also has the same effect. So jealousy will disappear because everybody will have what they need. Everything will be plentiful. So that's another part of why people want Mashiach, right? But the real reason is just like the door that lived in the Midbar that had manna come from heaven and their clothes grew with them. They never had to do laundry. The idea was is they, they were completely on the top of Abraham Maslow's, uh, you know, uh, stages of, of um, spiritual development in that all their physical needs were taken care of. And now they can completely devote themselves to actualizing their potential to realizing their tremendous spiritual potential, which causes us a lot of pain. When we feel that we're being withheld, when we feel that we're not expressing all of who we could be, this is a malady that we will be released from. Okay. So when we talk about David, at Semach David, right, we know that Mashiach is going to come from the line of David. And interestingly, if you can go back in your genealogy to Rashi, a lot of people trace themselves back to Rashi, immediately that means that you are part of the Davidic line, that you come from that line of David. I remember hearing, you know, in Asha Torah, Rabbi Noach Weinberg would often, Zatzal, uh, you know, he would have a group of guys sitting there, many of them completely assimilated, unaffiliated, you know, secular to the extreme. But he would ask the question, have any of you guys ever thought that you could be Mashiach? And the story was that all of them would put their hand up because they may not have known anything much about Judaism, but they knew about this idea that, you know, they're supposed to be this Messiah. And any Jewish boy, you know, who dreamed of being a superhero or anything, that was part of his, <clears throat> yeah, maybe, yeah. And they all admitted, you know, very sheepishly that they'd had a fleeting thought, you know, you know, that they could be Mashiach. 
I mean, my kids used to joke with my husband, come on, tell us, tell us, fess up, you know, are you really Mashiach? Come on, you know, so it, it's something that if you make it real, even for people who, you know, didn't grow up with it, there's something to it. It's interesting. Okay. Mashiach includes that everybody is going to be ingathered, the ingathering of the exiles. And there's a machlokas whether the temple will be rebuilt before the Mashiach comes or during the time of Mashiach. <clears throat> the Sanhedrin, which I've mentioned before, and I want to give you a little more information about what the Sanhedrin was today, will convene again in the proper place in the Mikdash, in the base of Mikdash, and all civil wars will be enforced. So a little bit about the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court. It had 71 members. And the question is why 71? Where did this come from? So in uh, the Torah, Hashem tells Moshe, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel. And you shall stand, and they shall stand there with you. So these 70 elders plus Moshe were 71. So the Sanhedrin was always located close to the tabernacle or the temple. It was near the entrance to the Mishkan, and later it was it, it was near the temple compound. It had a lot of powers. For example, it crowned a king. It authorized voluntary wars. It expanded holy sites such as Jerusalem and the courtyard of the Holy Temple and appointed lesser courts with 23 judges that were all over the land. Okay, just one of the interesting things. What were the qualifications to be on the Sanhedrin? So every judge was required to have the following attributes. Wisdom, humility, Yerat Shemayim, awe of heaven, a loathing for money, even his own, <laughs> a love for truth, the love of the people at large, and a good reputation. So that was what you needed to get on there, but there was more. It said to be appointed to the greater or lesser Sanhedrin, you had to achieve distinction in Torah knowledge possess some knowledge of intellectual disciplines such as medicine, mathematics, calendar, astronomy, astrology, and the teachings of idolatry. You had to know what all the other religions of the time were saying. Why? So that you would know how to judge cases concerning those fields. You couldn't be too old. And this is an interesting one. You had to have children. You couldn't be childless when appointed. And the reason for that is they say that somebody who has children will be more merciful, more compassionate than somebody who's never married or had children. Members of the Sanhedrin could be Kohanim, Levim, or Israelites, just the regular Yid who had fine pedigree. Okay, there's more. You can always Google it, but I just wanted to give you an idea of the fact that the Sanhedrin is going to return in the times of Mashiach. We're also gonna offer sacrifices again. Okay, we, that's a whole shear in itself. We're gonna observe Shemitah, right? Every seven years, letting the land lie fallow and Yovel, the 50th year, according to Torah law. Now, how will we know who the true Mashiach is? How will we know? We've had so many false Mashiachs. Right. If you've ever read about Shabtai Tzvi, the famous Shabtai Tzvi, who had the whole Jewish world from the greatest scholars to the simple Jew convinced that he was Mashiach, only to convert to Islam at the end of his life to save his neck. It's a very fascinating time in history. So how will we know that it's the real Mashiach? Will he perform wonders? Will he perform miracles? Will he walk on the water, right? Will he uh, rise from the dead? No. The Rambam says no, and no supernatural wonders will even take place in the world. 
the world will be a regular place going on as it is now. First of all, he's gonna have to prove his lineage, that he's from the Davidic dynasty before he's gonna be accepted. And I'm sure you're curious a little bit more about what the Mashiach is gonna be like. So let me read you. How will we identify the Mashiach? Not by supernatural wonders, but by the fulfillment of specific tasks. If a king from the house of David will arise, learn it in Torah and in the performance of mitzvahs, both according to the written and oral law, like his ancestor David, and he will force all of Jewry to follow the Torah and to strengthen its observance, and he will fight God's wars, then he is assumed to be Mashiach. If he is successful and builds the Mikdash in its proper place and gathers in all the exiles, then he is definitely Mashiach and he will eventually correct the entire world to serve God in unity, as it says. Then I will return to all nations a clear language so that all may call out in the name of Hashem and serve him with one portion. In every generation, the Chassam Sofer goes on to say, there is an individual or individuals who can potentially be Mashiach if the generation merits it. That person need not necessarily be aware of this possibility. The same way Moshe Rabbeinu had no idea that he was going to be the redeemer of the Jewish people in those days. He was already 80 years old when Hashem revealed his mission to him. So if someone claims to be Mashiach and has the credentials of being a descendant of David, a Talmud Chacham and a Tzaddik, and he gathers in all the exiles and fulfills the prophecies, and he brings the entire world to serve Hashem in total unity, then this is the Mashiach. But it will be a slow process that will start with his being assumed Mashiach, continue with his building the base of Mikdash, gathering in the exiles, and finally perfecting the world. Redemption will come slowly as the dawn. Just as the dawn comes in gradually, so too does the Geula, the redemption. We're in the process. We're heading towards it. Okay. Now, if he was not successful, or if he was killed, it's clear that he is not the one the Torah promised. He cannot die and be resurrected. This is not a Jewish idea. This is why we never accepted the Christian idea of Jesus. Because there is no such thing that you don't fulfill your purpose in your lifetime. Or at least, you know, the process, because obviously the Mashiach is going to live and die like everybody else. He's a human being, but he's going to set things in process. Okay. Um, and very interesting idea, though, is that the Rambam, even though we believe that Christianity is idol worship. Why? Because they believe in three gods, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But they do believe in God. Okay, and of course, the and you're not allowed to go into a church, by the way, because of that, because it's idol worship. They have idols everywhere. They bow down with statues all over the place. Now, Islam is a different story because Islam Muslims are monotheists. They believe only in one God. Okay, and they don't worship. They don't have statues. They believe like we do that it's a vodazara. It's it's making God physical or making God into a human being, or saying God died. I mean, it's just all her heresy. And of course, who are the people who gave the concept of Mashiach to the, to the world? We are the people who gave the idea to the world. We're the experts, right? I don't want to go into it now, but that's why there was so much Christian anti-Semitism. Because of the experts who gave the idea of Mashiach to the world are coming and saying, uh-uh, sorry, you didn't get the right one. We don't buy it. We're not going along with this. Well, the only way to get rid of us is to kill us so that they can feel that we've, we've got the right guy. 
right? My father always used to like to say, boy, if Jesus would wake up today, you know, around Pesach time, right? And he would see all these people, you know, making statues of it. He'd say, what is this? You know, I, I, I'm just a Jewish boy. I mean, where's a Seder I can get to? You know, I want to get to the Seder now. He would just be shocked. You know, he'd say, what a bunch of baloney. But anyway, that's not the point. The point that I want to make is the Rambam very interestingly says that Christianity and Islam were very good for the Goya. Because before Christianity, they were pagans. They were literally sacrificing their children at the altars of all kinds of idol worship. So it was a great step up for them. And of course, Christianity is built on the Jewish Old Testament, right? As Julius Sis likes to say about the Old and the New Testament, he once came and spoke at our shul in Binghamton, and I never forgot, he said, there are many new and true things in the New Testament, but what is new is not true, and what is true is not new. Okay, just that's a good way to sum it all up. But anyway, the point is, is that <clears throat> Rambam says that the concept of Mashiach was brought into the world through Christianity and Islam. And God set things up like this so that when the Mashiach actually does come, nobody's going to be surprised about the whole concept of it because they're all have going to be raised on it. And for thousands of generations, people have been talking about it, even if it's been the wrong one, right? I think today the Muslims are waiting for the 12th Imam. The 12th Imam is supposed to be Mashiach, okay? And they've already done the 11th or the 12th one's here already or something, right? We're waiting for the 10th cow, the Para Aduma, right? The Goyim, the Christians are waiting for him to come back again, okay? So the point is, is everybody's poised at this stage of history, and everybody knows about Mashiach, the Rambam says, because they all took the idea from Judaism and they ran with it in all kinds of directions. And we never accepted theirs because we know exactly what the Mashiach is supposed to do. And if he doesn't do it, then he's not the Mashiach. And he certainly doesn't have to come back a second time and try again, okay? All right, so. Hashem permitted their religions to be successful in order to pave the way for Mashiach. And I could read you so much more on this, but we only have a certain amount of time. And we know as Jews that success in numbers, even though these religions are way bigger than ours and much more popular, right? That success in numbers is not a valid measure of truth or validity. I actually read a beautiful thing by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs about the counting that we do of Jews at the beginning of this Parsha that we just read. Just quickly, he said, we don't count Jews, right? We count their money, right? They bring a half shekel and we count money. But he had a chiddush, his own idea. Um, I think it was a chiddush of his. We know we don't count people, we don't count Jews because you can't make a person into a number. It's dehumanizing. Secondly, you know, you don't want to be singled out because you don't want God looking at you individually because you might have more averas than mitzvahs. You want to be part of a tzibur. You want to be part of a crowd. There's many reasons. But Rabbi Sachs said it's because how did Jews, how did Jews get counted? By giving right? And then he thinks, think about all the contributions the Jews have made to the world. We're 0.5% of the world, okay? And the contributions that the Jews have made, which is symbolic of this money that we give um, when we're counted, right? From the beginning of time, there's so many books written about the gift of the Jews and everything else. And he says, what maybe God was trying to teach us is, you know, you're always going to be few in number. You're always going to be tiny. Don't get demoralized. Don't get depressed. You might get depressed by that. When you see all these, you know, vast numbers of people that belong to all the other nations. But your smallness is not indicative of your greatness and of your power. And it's through this power of giving that a Jew makes such a big splash in the world. Um, Oh, I'd love you to read to read you his words. They're so much better than mine. But let's see. 
Yeah, we're gonna have to waste time. Okay. Anyway, you got the idea. Okay, so let's look at this bracha a little more closely now. So it starts with the word et. Very interesting, right? What does et mean? So et semach David. So et, the word et or s, always comes to add something, something that's not there in the text. For example, we have Bereshis bara elokim. Es HaShemayim, the Es HaAres. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So one idea is the S is Aleph to Taf, right? God created Aleph to Taf, everything. But the idea is, Bereshis Bara Es HaShemayim, he created the heavens and everything in the heavens. The S comes to tell us everything, all the hosts of the heavens, Right? And Esha'aretz is coming to tell us, and he created the earth and everything necessary, everything that's going to be there on the earth. So S is always coming to add something. Or we have the same thing in Kabed, S Avicha, the S Imecha, honor your father and your mother. So the S Avicha is coming to include your older brother. That's not an easy one. You're supposed to honor your older brother, okay? And actually, you're even supposed to honor your father's wife, even if it's not your mother, even if it's the evil stepmother, okay? You have to honor her. So the S is always coming to teach something else. So here, this S at the beginning of the bracha is coming to tell you that we're not just talking about Mashiach ben David. We're talking about, in this bracha, Mashiach ben Yosef, which I looked up, which is very complicated, but we're not going to talk about what that is. And Eliyahu Hanavi, who we know is supposed to come before Mashiach and basically let everybody know that he's here, right? The inauguration is happening or whatever it's going to look like, right? And so that's what the S here comes to teach us. Then we have the word Semach. And we have that word Semach, Tatsmiach, Matsmiach. We have it three times in this bracha. Semach means to sprout. And again, this idea of sprouting, of growing, is a process. It's not something that happens all at once. It's something that takes time, that has to be nurtured, right, for this sprouting to happen. And we said, interestingly, I just read this, that the word semach and the word sameach, Rav Hirsch, Rav, Rav Vashimshin Rafal Hirsch, who was famous at his linguistic connection between words, he says those words are interchangeable or they're, they have a, a connection to each other in that joy, happiness, and growth are connected. So you ladies out there together with me as we, you know, continue on our journey of self-growth, right, which God willing will start a new topic this Wednesday, that brings joy, it brings true happiness, right? And so the same idea of Mashiach coming and the world being a much happier place where people know what they're living for people know what the purpose of life as a whole and individually are and we see with greater clarity how Hashem has been bringing the world to this point or as Rabbi Manus Friedman said an unbelievable statement that we're actually going to look back at Jewish history with all of its horrors and tribulations and and difficult times and we're actually going to say, wow, it was worth it. To think that we would ever say something like that, but that's just in a description of how incredible Mashiach's going to be, that we're going to have such clarity that usually is only reserved for the next world, that we'll be able to say, you know what? It was all worth it. Not only personally, individually in our own trials and tribulations, but as a people. Awesome. Okay. The name Semach, the same word in the Gematria is the name Menachem, the numerology. Menachem is uh, considered to be possibly the name of Mashiach, right? That's why he might come on uh, uh, the ninth day of Av, right? Day of mourning will turn into a day of joy, we're told, when Mashiach comes. That month is called Menachem Av. It's a month of consolation, a month where God is comforting us at the time when the worst thing happened to us, when we lost our temple and the beginning of where we are now happened, right? The exile, 
where we don't even have a clue anymore of what we had and what we're missing, right? We read about it, we think about it, but we don't really know it. We don't really know. So, Samach David Abdecha, the outgrowth sprouting from David HaMelech. Again, the idea of planting and growing is the idea that a plant needs work and care in order to grow properly. And that's why before Mashiach's arrival, it will be preceded by tshuva and tefillah. And maybe it's here that I want to read to you from this book. Okay, just like a plant begins underground and then suddenly one day it sprouts, it'll be the same with Mashiach, right? The spring comes and all of a sudden you look out and my husband would say the crocuses are croaking, you know? <laughs> you know, the, there's something coming up. There's that little green shoot and you feel so good, especially if you're Canadian. You say, wow, it's really here. It's coming. It's here. How exciting. We get so excited by that, right? And that's the way it is with Mashiach. Everything is preparing for its ultimate appearance. And we want it to happen quickly. And it's likened to Shabbos, right? We're, there are six days of the week. We are in the last of the six days. We are preparing for Shabbos, according to all of the rabbis, all of the mystics. The time that we are living in right now, probably with the technological revolution, it says everything is speeding up. Everything has been speeding up. My bubby used to say, boy, I can't believe it. The cars and the this and everybody's running, you know, whatever. The point is, is what people saw in the last past hundred years, it took it. it they didn't have it for thousands of years, right? So we're living in this time called Erev Shabbos. What do you do Erev Shabbos? You're rushing. You're jumping in the shower. You're getting ready. You're yelling at your kids. You're saying, hurry up. I got to light the candles. I don't want to be late. That's the time period that we're living in. Okay? And that's how we're going to be speeding up before Mashiach's arrival. So we're living in the time. Okay? Now it says... Okay, you know what? I want to read to you from here because it's so good. Okay, so in this book where he's talking about the footsteps of Mashiach and COVID, okay, and many of the chapters are involving COVID, he says, COVID has definitely been a step toward bringing out clarity. During normal times, we rely on the government for support in different areas, the healthcare system to keep us healthy, the consumer supply chain, which ordinarily affords us with unlimited access to any product we may need. During the COVID-19 crisis, we were shown the futility of relying on any of these. What shook our faith in these formidable institutions? A microscopic virus. If we think about it, if this follows a pattern we've seen before in history, when Hashem wants to teach us that he alone runs the world, he uses something small and insignificant. Okay, and here's a couple of examples. I knew about the second one. I didn't know about the first one. It says, Og Melech Habashan, who was this great giant, right, who all the Jews were afraid of, is the eternal symbol of superhuman strength and power. The Gemara in Brachas 54b tells us that Og was holding a mountain above his head, prepared to hurl it at Kal Yisrael, when Hashem brought him down with weak, unremarkable insects, ants. Hashem directed the ants to tunnel around the base of the mountain, causing its center to fall onto Og's head, killing him, right? We know that the great giant Goliath was killed with a little stone, that David HaMelech directed towards his head. Titus, Titus, how did Titus die? Titus, after conquering Eretz Yisrael and destroying the base Hamikdash unhindered, was traveling back to Rome on a boat when a storm erupted. Titus arrogantly challenged heaven and taunted, are you only able to fight me at sea? Hashem responded, 
proud one. I will bring your downfall through the smallest of creatures. A tiny insect then flew into Titus's ear and began pecking at his brain. For seven years, the insect caused Titus to suffer excruciating headaches until it eventually brought about his premature death. The Medrash, the end of Parshas Korach, says that before Mashiach's arrival, Hashem will show the nations of the world that they do not have strength of their own by sending a birya kala shebebruin, the most insignificant of creations, to dismantle the world. The tiny virus he sent certainly accomplished that. Okay, I'm just telling you what it says. Um, I actually brought this home from Shul uh, a few months ago. I was going to show you this a while ago, but this is perfect. Uh, the rabbi of our Shul mentioned, or actually he got it from somebody else. There was a rabbi who lived only two years ago, just before the virus, okay? He was not here. He died two years ago. But he wrote a perush. She wrote a commentary on Parshas Miketz two years ago. The Parsha that talks about Pharaoh's dream. It opens up with the dreams of Pharaoh. And he writes, and I, I won't read the Hebrew. I'll just read you the English. He's describing the turmoil that's going to come before the end of the Galut. And he says this war that they always talk about of Gog and Magog is not necessarily a great war, right? Because we also know that the word gug means roof, okay? And magog means those who believe in the roof. So the idea is, is those people who believe in their material possessions, in the roof that covers their house, unlike the Jewish idea where we go out in our sukkah and without a roof because we say God is the one who is protecting and taking care of us. He's the one who's running the show. The war will be, to, be between ideologies, between those who believe in themselves, in their own power, in their own hubris and arrogance, and those who always recognize that there was Hashem. So he says, this will be the war. And this was Pharaoh's dream, he says, that Hashem will bring something upon the world which will be like a dream. It will have no substance and it will not be visible. For example, he says, this was written before the virus, two years ago. For example, Hashem can send down a tiny virus throughout the entire world, which will overturn and confound the whole world from one end to the other, like a dream. And with the technology, and even with the technology today, the entire world will be like dreamers. Hayinu kechomim, as we say in Shir Hamalos, that we say every right? Every time we bench, we'll be like dreamers. He says the whole world will be in the stream and nothing will help them. Okay. All right. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the horn, the Karen that appears in this bracha, because it appears twice. The Karno, the word Karen, right? And at the end, it says, Matzmiach Karen Yeshua. So what is this horn? So the strength and beauty of animals are its horns. And it figuratively, and that's why the word glory is used because the horn refers to the concept of glory. An animal without horns is a nebuch, right? The glory of, a, of an animal are its horns. And that's why we would use a horn to anoint the kings of Israel with oil. David was anointed by Shmuel Hanavi with a horn. And that was symbolic that his monarchy would last. Shaul, on the other hand, Shaul HaMelech, who was a failed king, was anointed from an earthenware flask, which was easily broken. It was a sign that his monarchy would not last. And then we say, For we hope for you every single day. And this is the mitzvah, right? That every single day, you know, Mashiach can come. I happen to have a friend in Israel. She's very Sephardic. She's the type of Sephardi that, you know, it takes her 10 minutes to give you a bracha, you know, and you love it because it's like having a shower, 
you know, it's like you get this bracha that just goes on and on, and then you do your best to give her an Ashkenazi bracha, which, you know, only lasts for about 25 seconds, but, you know, we try, and, um, and anyway, and, and, and the end of everything is always, and Mashiach is coming, and Mashiach is coming, and Mashiach is coming, and he's coming, and he's coming, and he's coming, and, you know, it's just so heartwarming to talk to her, because she really means it, you know, and, and, and it's a reminder, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to want Mashiach. Oh, yeah. Why am I supposed to want him? Oh, yeah. But, you know, we're putting in a pool and we're renovating our house. I, I mean, I don't really want to go to Israel. I don't really want him to come so fast because, you know, I kind of like where, where I am and what I'm doing right now. So, you know, like, I'm not sure I want this, right? Okay. Anyway. We hope for your salvation all day long. The Rambam says we should not set a time for him. It's called Asr. It's not, uh, it's forbidden to try to calculate when Mashiach is coming according to scriptural passages, but we should hope and wait for him every day. When we say these words in this prayer, we should think about our present personal problems. We should think about our present troubles because these words are a proven method of deliverance from difficult times. So the question we're going to be asked at the end of time is, did you, did you, Hope for the Mashiach. And the Talmud says that Mashiach isn't going to come until the Jewish people give up all hope for redemption and there will be no help or support for Israel. When they give up relying on other countries, other dignitaries, other politicians, etc. Just like in the Purim story, if you know anything about the Purim story, Esther invites Haman to a party right after the Jews. Uh, genocide has been decreed by Haman and the Jews are all scratching their heads going what's going on here what's she doing this is Esther we all had our hopes pinned on her she's going to save us from this Haman and now she's inviting him to a party but the, the Megillah teaches us that Esther did this strategically not just in order to bring Haman's downfall but to get the Jews to understand or to think that she's not on their team, that they shouldn't put their trust in her because she's not going to save them. Your protexia isn't going to save you. The people that you know in higher places aren't going to save you. It's only when the Jewish people recognize this and they cry out with the same cry that we cried out before we left Egypt, a cry that came from the depths of their being, a cry that had the clarity that said, there is nobody else who can help me. There's nobody else who can save us. Pharaoh says yes, then he says no. Then he says yes, then he says no. What's going on? Only you, Hashem, can do this for us. And we end this bracha, Baruch atah Hashem, and it says, kol hayom, right? Every day. Baruch atah Hashem, matzmiach keren Yeshua. You, Hashem, are the source of all blessing who causes the ge'ula to flourish. And this bracha, we're told, was said by the angels when the Bnei Yisrael successfully crossed the Yamsuf, the Red Sea. And this shira that was sung when the Jews crossed the Red Sea will be the same kind of shira that we will sing in the future when we have the true redemption, a redemption that's going to be greater than even that which we experienced when we came out of Egypt. We won't celebrate Pesach anymore, okay? And I just want to conclude with this last idea from Rabbi Foyer's book. Each of us possess tremendous potential. Tragically, much of our talent remains dormant and locked within us and never gains expression. Unrealized potential is life's most painful frustration. In a sense, it means that we are alienated and exiled from our real selves. The great blessing of the messianic era is that every person will have the opportunity to completely realize his potential, to tap all of his inner resources, both intellectual and emotional. Everyone will flourish like a blossoming garden, bringing forth the fruits of his labor. 
Decades ago, the Holy Chafetz Chaim observed that the incredible scientific and technological breakthroughs of the 20th century are a sure sign of the imminent arrival of the Mashiach, because his blessing teaches us how to unleash all of our locked up potential. Okay, anyway, that's the reason that we want Mashiach among many others, is that we will be able to express ourselves completely in a way that we can't ever imagine. And the non-Jews of the world will be thirsting for the knowledge of God, for the knowledge of Torah and all that we've been uh, teaching and espousing. The great religions of the world are built on our religion and everybody will come back to an understanding of who the Jewish people are as a people and each one of us individually will become the teachers and 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 um, God willing, it should be soon. And remember, we are in the process. We are all in the process. And the more we long for it, one of the main themes of this book, The End Illuminated, is that the biggest mitzvah of Mashiach is longing for it, is yearning for it. The same way you want your cleaning lady to come before Pesach. You want the Mashiach to come, right? And you're disappointed if there's a knock on the door and it's not your cleaning lady, right? It's just the mailman, okay? All right. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And please join me on Wednesday.